the street shitter is immunized against all native peoples. One may call him a poo and loo, curry nigger, Asian Mexican, job stealer. It all runs off him like water off a fresh street turd. But call him a code shitter and you'll be astonished at how he recoils, how injured he is, how he suddenly shrinks back. Praise Vishnu, I must call Sandeep. You know, it isn't that hard to learn how to code. You can even learn in your spare time, pretty much while you're doing other things. For me, it comes pretty easy to pick up new concepts and to hold on to them. I can employ these new learned skills and create something from that, and it might be even creative. Uh, m most of the things I do entail uh, a bit of creative concepts, especially trying to find new ways to break into network infrastructure or physical building. With Indians flooding the country with shitty code, shitty curry, and shit in general, it's hard to understand why companies employ so many fucking brown assholes overseas, especially when we have a thriving group of young men fresh out of college with comp side degrees and they can't even find a decent job. I'm gonna jump to conclusions here, so hold on to your seat, bucko, because I'm gonna unleash pure hell on you fucking Krishna cucks. Fuck the H-1B program and fuck the companies that use it. They are a cancer on this industry and deserve to have their S-Corp or LLC or their business license stripped from them. One of the biggest, reason, biggest reasons we have such high unemployment rates in this country is because we import savage shit machines that have zero imagination. Walking paychecks with no true desire, so to speak. Plus, they insert unneeded diversity into the work environment. Have you ever looked at the industries that support H-1B? It's a pretty long list, fam. Here's a list of the big ones and uh, see how long it takes you to get rustled. IT, computing, finance, accounting, banking, marketing, advertising, PR, sales, recruiting, engineering of all types, teaching, healthcare and medical, legal, lawyers, networking, telecom, business, management, hospitality. That's right. Bussing tables and waiting tables is considered a, a qualifier for the H-1B program. These things are valid for six years and allow them to import their spouse and their 80 fucking kids to culturally enrich our country with shit we don't want and shit we really don't need. Bland code, Food that makes you shit Dalsin's yoga fire and a bunch of smelly rugrats that run into traffic. Think about this for a moment. Our government considers waiting tables, which is hospitality, a warranted field to let someone into our country. I really don't understand why anyone here would let these people be in charge of managing anything. Have you seen their country? I have, and I really don't want to go back ever. They need to go back. Now you might be saying, but, but, but fam, their education is top tier compared to America's. Education does not equal competency. And I highly doubt that they're actually educated. And I'll explain to you why in a little bit. Now, 
If I take a 30-year-old white developer who's been doing development since he was about 18, and I have a resume a mile long, and he has a portfolio that's about as thick as the Encyclopedia Dramatica, and I stick him in a room with a 30-year-old street shitter, quote, programmer, I can tell you who would be able to give me a finished product first, to spec, and actually have it QA'd and completely stable with no bullshit. Here's a hint. He ain't fucking brown. Also, take into account, there are tons of Apus that straight out lie about their education and training. There are tons and tons of documented cases of examination scandals and examination fraud that go on in India where these people get fake degrees with fake qualifications from fake colleges. Even if they're completely clueless about it, they would still get hired. There are literally even fake airline pilots and doctors for fuck's sake. There is a documented case where there is a school that will show you how to quote, fly planes and get you certified as a pilot in 35 minutes. Companies such as Microsoft, Apple, HP, Lufthansa, American Airlines, Church of Lauderdale Saint controlled hospitals, and tons of other conglomerates like these ship these people in on H-1B visas and let their regular people go. These companies have had close ties to the Washington Working Group that deals with the H-1B program. People like Amy Klobuchar and Orrin Hatch. They've worked in concert to destroy the ability for local peoples to thrive and prosper. Instead, they determine our economy and, economy and our way of life to bring, quote, guest workers into the fold. In the end, the whole program is just a way to lower wages, discourage people from overcoming their betters, and becoming better individuals. These traders say things like, there isn't enough talent here. If that's so, then why exactly is the unemployment rate for the entire country still hovering at 5% or 16 million people? Take into account this does not include the other 5% of people that have reported that they have completely left the workforce since 2009, right after the, the, the big bubble crash. There's only one solution to be honest here, fam. Number one, revoke H-1B status from all current stays and ship them back. This includes post H-1B to citizen status. Revoke their citizenship. Remove them now. Number two, punish visa overstays by stripping them of their right to re-enter the country as a guest and consider them a hostile person. Three, any company found to collude with fake universities should be fined a minimum of $1 million plus the yearly cost of the street shitter and his family's cost of living expense. Number four, force companies that have international offices to partition their APAC region into a separate entity so that there are no overseas imports of conglomerate-based products. APAC stands for Asia Pacific. Number five, work with local schools to teach high-tech trades 
as a means of production to boost the workforce. And number five is important. It would signal to the populace that's left the workforce that they are needed again and they are wanted again. We need you to come back. We definitely do. Now I could talk more about this at some other point, probably during uh, the podcast at which you know we will discuss this. It is important to understand that we're on the precipice of a civilization change and we only have a short amount of time before we as a people are forced to the edge. We have to make a decision. I urge you to bring this matter to your friends, your family, your local government, hell, just blast it on Twitter as much as possible and hopefully someone picks it up. Talk to them about how damaging this program is to us. Make them understand, do not give an inch. Do not let up. These people are just as bad as MUDs, except that they have keyboards instead of AK-47s. Now get the fuck out of my fucking country. Episode 2 of Open Source Closed Borders, a podcast by IT pros who are tired of being spoken for by beta male weaklings who write CSS for United Nations fan blog. Thanks for listening. I'm Cal. On the control panel tonight are Crimson Crusader. Hey. Thors. Thors. Hurt my feelings, man. Did, did, oh. Man, I had. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'll Hi, guys. <laughs> uh, I'll just start over. Oh no, that was great. Just we can we can post we can fix that in post. Oh yeah yeah you 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 can spend five minutes, Cal, splicing it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and Don. Hello, sir. Excellent. Tonight with us we have a very special guest, Higgins. Higgins has acquired extensive knowledge about the H-1B guest worker visa system and the cultures of those who are being imported on it. Higgins, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, guys. Would you like to plug anything or expand on that introduction for our listeners? Uh, yes, I wanted to plug uh, InfoWars Penis Juice. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, no, I have nothing to plug. I just kind of wanted to talk to you guys because I think uh, I have some experience and some uh, knowledge about what the IT industry has done over the last 20 years or so. Uh, I've been in, in software development since the mid-90s. Um, I have experience working with a lot of Indians, and I've seen a lot of changes over the last couple of decades. So I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about my experiences with it, see what you thought. Um, and for people who are interested in IT, I wanted to pass along my, my knowledge so that you can prep yourself accordingly. Great. So um, you just want to take it away? You want to start with uh, your, your story and how you got acquainted with the H-1B system and its implications? So I started in the 90s, uh, the mid-90s, uh, about the time of the dot-com era when the boom cycle started. Um, my experience in the 90s was it was uh, software was very much a European-American endeavor. Um, the first companies that I worked for were Fortune 100 companies and also software shops. And uh, I guess the thing that I saw most about um, in the 90s was that there was a huge shortage of talent 
for um, coding. And that caused a lot of big, big problems from the executive side of, uh, of uh, the business. Executives began to see software developers as a liability because in the 90s there were so many people um, who were looking for you know, open positions and they couldn't find the talent for it. So what they did was they paid people exorbitant amounts of money. So in the 90s, for example, I worked at consultancies, some of the best consultancies in the world. Um, and that's not just hyperbole. It was actually, we were ranked, one of my consultant companies was ranked as one of the best in North America, if not the best, by a major software company. And at that time, executives were paying us a lot of money. We were getting a lot of good bonuses, and we were getting really, really good gigs. I mean, in the 90s, to be a software developer was to be, you know, top dog uh, in the kennel. And what we did, you know, was just very, very difficult to replicate because there was such a shortage. We could not find people to do what we did as far as web development and, and even desktop development. So beginning around 2001, 2002, 2003, after the, you know, the tech bust of that period, one of the things that I noticed was a lot of the tech journals started talking about commoditizing software development, meaning that a lot of people looked at software developers as commodities like oil or cotton. And when we talk about a commodity like oil or cotton, what we mean is something fungible, something that is interchangeable, um, something that can be transferred, something that we are not beholden to as far as needing it but not being able to get it. Um, and what happened from there around 2002, 2003, was um, companies began to focus on this commoditization of software development, and, and they began thinking in terms of all software developers are interchangeable. So I could take any one of you guys and, and can swap you with the other and get the same amount of, of work, the same result, and have the business grow. And... From my point of view at the time as a young software developer, it was a, it was not really something I understood. Um, but as time went on, what I saw was companies embracing this idea of the commoditization of software development. And I think the articles that I read were like in Forbes, um, IT journals, you know, Business Week, that sort of stuff. And what happened was corporations began saying this mantra of, well, we can just replace John with Joe and Joe with Jack and, and so on. And we can build the same kind of software that we need for our business systems. And we'll never, ever have a shortage like what we did in 1997, 98. And um, they began looking at outsourcing. Now, the H-1B program, I've talked to engineers from, from very, very good schools who've worked with them in, in not just software, but in civil engineering and construction engineering and electrical engineering. They, 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 they were aware of the H-1B program, you know, when it was released back in the 80s. And some of the – I have a friend of mine who's a farmer. He lives up the road, and he's a retired uh, civil engineer, and he actually hired an H-1B back in the in, – about 1990, 91, 
and um, had a good experience with him. He said the H-1B guy was from India. He was pretty sharp, and he did his, he did really good work. And uh, I was at his farm one day, and I said, well, you know, what happened to the program after that? And he said, well, you know, he said, Higgins, after that, it was all downhill. You know, it was just like I did – he did water treatment, and he said that every H-1B that I hired after about 1991 was just not worth, you know, a bucket of shit. Um, and so from my point of view, in the part of the country that I live in, we didn't have a lot of H-1Bs at first. So 15 years ago, there, there just weren't many H-1Bs being used in my neck of the woods. It was a West Coast um, thing. New York City also had a lot of uh, H-1B programs that were open, but it was not something around the late 90s that, that we had a lot of. And, and you know, all the companies that I worked for were European-American solidly. We had maybe one or two native-born Indians, but there, there were just so few of them that you could count them. I can still count them on my hand uh, in terms of, of my career experience at the time. What happened over time, like I said, was the, this idea that, that global capitalism pushed was that that labor was easily switchable, meaning, you, like I said before, you could take any, any person and, and swap them out, and they would be just as good as the person that you swapped them out with. And from there, it, it became an idea that, well, if we can do that with Americans, why can't we just do it with foreigners? So they started looking at India closer because of the of, of the information that was coming out of the West Coast. And then over time, what I saw by 2005, 2006 was that companies were heavily relying upon Indian labor um, because of the shortages uh, of, of capable people who could build software and uh, just because of, of the labor costs. They were so much cheaper um, from the managers and the executive point of view that it made a lot of sense to just kind of ditch American workers and, and go with uh, Indian labor. From about 2006 to 2011, I worked on, on a lot of projects for clients that where there was Indian labor involved and the software quality was terrible. Um, it was so bad that um, what I what I experienced was it was just like how can you run a company with the, the software that you're, that you're building? And I should say my my background has been where I live has been working with a lot of Fortune 100 and 500 companies. Um, and around 2008 2009, what I noticed was that companies started doing a blend meaning that the H-1B program was still used, but not as much. What they, what they started doing was just going straight to offshoring. And for people who don't know, offshoring just means that American companies send the work to India. And then in India, in their time zone, they began writing software, doing you know whatever they need to do with the specs that they're given. And... Um, this was something that corporations really embraced was that the H-1B was, was difficult for some of them to stomach as far as sponsorships, costs, and, and legal fees and the paperwork. So they said, well, why, why don't we do this? Why don't we just have, you know, two H-1Bs or, or even better, have a consultancy who's India, Indian based in Hyderabad or, you know, Bangalore or someplace like that and just send the work to them and let them work on it late at night. And what I've experienced 
even up till today is that um, the H1B is is has is still there. It's still a problem, but most companies, especially in in publicly traded companies of a billion dollars or better, they are much more focused on using the offshore resources that are based, you know, in India. Um, that has been a disaster. There, there's no question in my mind, and. Only until recently have I ha, have I even seen a real change in the IT industry in that um, even offshoring has just become taboo for a lot of companies. Um, I don't work in an office environment. I work from home, and I have for years. And it's it's in, in large part thanks to Indians because they they've created such bad software that um, the options available to companies are so limited that they've said, well, we're, we're looking at freelance workers who are here in the United States who are native English speakers who have good you know, resumes and have good credentials because the Indian thing is just so expensive for them, so costly. Um, so I can answer questions or dig into my experiences and, and further, but I just kind of wanted to give you a broad perspective of what I've seen in the last 20 years. It's interesting how little has changed to me from what you're saying because I, I see a lot of the same stuff now in what I'm doing. Um, I, did, I did some consulting for a for a large publicly traded company and they did a lot of their software offshore and I would basically come in and fix a lot of the problems afterwards. Um, when you say it's been a disaster, has it been a disaster for um, for the company's bottom line or do just projects fail and they have to scramble to pick up the pieces and move on like we say disaster like has, has it actually threatened the existence of companies absolutely I, I will give you an example of a recent client that i had up until the the spring of this year and i had worked for this client for several years and they had they had used the offshore model and i remember just to give you an anecdote um, you'll you'll be able to appreciate it. The listeners who have a tech brown, tech background will be able to appreciate it. The, the problem was is that we sent a particular report that was used by a very 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 large major international financial institution um, overseas to have Indians build it. Right. This is for a huge huge bank. It's, I would say it's probably one of the biggest in North America, you know, as far as, as, you know, if I said the name, you would recognize it, right? Right. We sent this report over to the Indians to have them work on it. And what we got back was the Indians trying to load many million, millions of records into memory at runtime to generate a report, <laughs> which is not no. something you can do, right? Right. So the way that... the way any, any like, you know, Java.net, all of them have this problem where, you know, people say, well, I have 64 gigabits of, of memory on, on my computer. You know, why can't I just load, you know, 20 million records into uh, memory and spit out a report? Well, you can't do that because the way the way that memory works is that it's contiguous, right? So at runtime, you know, the, the bank was experiencing crashing problems all over the place because there was there was plenty of memory physically, but the way the runtime allocates memory means that, you know, it's trying to insert 
this big chunk of, of memory coming in from this record set and it can't do it because there's not enough contiguous space. Um, and what happened was, is that this was a legal document. This was not just a simple report. It was a, a legal compliance issue for this particular country and they couldn't generate the report. And uh, as I started looking, I was assigned to it because the way that, that American software de development works is that Americans have to fix the stuff that is broken by the offshore production team. Right. Now, that's my experience talking to every developer that I, that I know in my area, you know, with, with the offshoring model is that Americans are not the ones who actually design and develop the software because if we did it, it would be correct. It's, we are there to fix the problems that the Indians create because they don't know anything, right? Right. Um, <laughs> broken, so, broken window fallacy in software. <laughs> that's a good analogy. That's exactly, that is exactly correct. And it, it's been something I – mean, I, I can get into that. I've, I've asked middle managers this many times over the years. Like, why, why would you give the first crack at design – and uh, you know, formal specification to the people who know least about software development, and they always say, "Well, you know, your job is to mentor. Your job is to help them and guide them and give them suggestions. But you will be there to you will be the guy who fixes it, right? So all the fuck ups that come across from Pacific Ocean, you will be there to fix it late at night, whatever." So the example of the, the millions of, of, of pieces of data being loaded into memory, that that is a basic error that even a first semester comp sci student could you know, say, hey, this is not going to work. And this company that did this kind of stuff, this was just an example, but the company that did this, did this all over the place to the point where they were bought and sold like prostitutes on the open market. And... They, they did. They, it, it, at the end of the day, they, I think I had a friend of mine tell me one day, he said, look, you know, this company is, is in, in the hole for $50 million and they've hired dozens and dozens of Indians for a period of eight or nine years and they have nothing to show for it besides debt. So the, the idea was is that Indians were going to save us all money because they were going to write software and it was going to be, you know, good stuff that we could sell to people and it would work. And, and, all my experiences has been just the opposite. They, they just suck at everything that they do. And they won't, there are some huge cultural differences between Anglos and Indians. So when I say Anglo, I mean Irish, Catholics, you know, Scotsman, English, whatever your background, if you're, if you're from Europe. I have, and I've seen developers go into meetings and have toe-to-toes with management about what is and is not possible as far as does this make sense, right? Because right. the software developers all care about their company. They care about what they do, and they care about making a good product because at the end of the day, you know, a white guy, a white gal, they want to go home and know they did a good job. Yep. What I've seen and what I've experienced with Indians is that they will say, sure, 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 and they go off. And you ask them, are you having problems? Do you have technical issues? Do you need help? No, 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 no. Everything is great. Everything is just perfect. And they will. If you do not watch them, they will go off into a closet, and they will come out with something they pulled off of Stack Overflow 
like the wrong answer off of a Stack Overflow article, and I've seen them do this. <laughs> totally wrong. Like they they will they will read an answer on Stack Overflow, and I know this because I've grepped it. One day I said uh, I was looking at this issue that an Indian submitted a fix for, and I started looking at the code, and I said this is so fucked up. And I just took the code and copied and pasted it and Googled it. And sure enough, this Stack Overflow article pops up. And sure enough, the guy who puts it up there says, this is wrong. Do not do it this way. <laughs> right. right? Or you go to you know, any of the, of the blogging sites, like Stack Overflow is like the biggest one. Like Indians go to Stack Overflow. They will find the exact wrong fucking answer in the list. They will pick it. They will copy and paste it into the IDE, check it into GitHub, whatever, you, you're toast, right? And um, I just realized that, that what we were paying for for Indians were, pe were people who don't even really understand English because they couldn't read Stack Overflow and understand that, that, that people were saying, don't do this because it doesn't work. Because their English proficiency in a lot of cases is so bad that they're using Google Translate or something like that, and they're trying to figure out what they think is important, um, and they, they they just make it they just make it worse, right? And this stuff gets checked into the repositories, and in, in in the jobs that I've had in the last I don't know four or five years, I spend more time digging through uh, you know TFS and, and Git, trying to find the stuff that they've checked in. Because even if you tell them you can't do a merge until someone's reviewed it, they will work night and day to find ways to check shit in so that you don't know about it. And, you know, TFS are great. You can set up alerts and you can know when, when any of them checks in something. But it's, just, it's, it's a full-time job. And we even, I've even worked with teams where we had people whose full-time job was just to sit there and watch what the Indians were doing on the offshore side. And um, it, it, is, it is so sad because here's the thing that I've experienced. So, so I have a college degree, but it's not in comp sci, right? I, my, my degree is in uh, liberal arts, but I had a lot of focus in math, uh, formal logic, symbolic logic, and other topics that had to do with logic, right? So I, that was my thing. I was really interested in those areas, and I, I pursued them. And so computer science was a natural fit for me. And I've always made a good living at it. Like, I've never been jobless in the last 20 years. I've always been making more and more money over time because I work for good companies. I have a good resume and good references. And the thing about software is I think it's something that Mike Enoch talked about on a, on an episode of the, of the show was that you could take a high school graduate if he's smart, if she's smart, because I've worked with, I've worked with really good female developers, um, QA people, project managers. I've had a good experiences working with women. You could take a high school graduate and you could actually teach them the art of software development over time by setting them on tasks like support, doing basic QA, uh, doing the things that, that we all do when we're first starting out, right? right? You could do this and you could create over time really good software developers and never send them to college. Now, I, I actually have worked with a really, really sharp developer some, from some really good technical schools and I will say that a comp sci degree 
if you have the money and you don't want to go into debt, it is a, it's a great thing to have. I'm not crashing comp sci at all. I mean, there are really, really good reasons to get a comp sci degree. But for most of the work that is done in the business world, you don't need a comp sci degree because we, we do business logic processing. We do comp, uh, you know, related tasks that have to do with, you know, performance tuning and things like that. Having a comp sci degree is a nice to have, but it's not essential. And real world experience with a, with a mentor under the old um, Western style of apprentice and journeyman and, and that sort of thing, that, that counts for a lot. I mean, I've seen, you know, it's funny because, you know, my local city has an actual intern program where sophomores and freshmen from a very, very good school work in business in the summer. I mean, they, they actually come on board and they will work in businesses. And they're, they're horrible coders, to be honest with you, but they're really, really sharp at learning and picking up stuff fast. Like if you if you spend time with them and talk about, you know, their questions, they, they just pick it up, boom, 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 right? And usually by the end of the summer or even throughout the academic year, because a lot of them work um, – even through you know part time as during uh, when classes are going on, they do really well, right? And you could do this, for, like I said, with high school students. Like I know two developers that I've worked with who have high school degrees, um, diplomas, and they're just excellent developers. And they have been for 15 years. I've known them off and on, you know, for, for over a decade, and they they just do really solid work. But American companies don't view they don't have a lot of faith in, in, in the nation, right? There's not a there's not a sense of national pride about corporations. There's there's no sense of um, investing in your own country and and what you're and, and believing in what your country can do. And they they continue to hire Indians, and they, they I'm just I'm I'm very very shocked at the kinds of stuff that companies try to sell to each other. That's just utter garbage and bullshit. So I don't, I don't want to take up too much time. I'm just kind of giving you what, and I don't think it's different from, from what you guys have experienced. But I just want to make one plug, is that if you're not in software and you're listening to this discussion and you're an American or you're you're European or you're in the Anglosphere, you're, you're maybe an Australian or, or a New Zealander or something like that, the most important thing you can do is believe in your country Believe in your countrymen. Believe in the quality that Westerners and whites in particular can do because we, we can do anything. We've done it, right? And we're the best situated to do it. And um, if you're an accountant, who cares? Just remember that whatever happens to the software developer can happen to you, and it has happened because we've outsourced accounting to India as well too. Uh, we've outsourced uh, the training of physicians to India. Um, in my area, if I look in the phone book or in my, my HMO's directory for physicians, it's almost all Indian. We can't even we, – we, we're not even willing to invest in training Americans how to be doctors anymore. Um, and I, I really wish that Americans and Westerners and whites in general just had a better labor consciousness of realizing that – if it can happen to the software developer or the physician, it can happen to you, and it has probably already happened, and you've been fucked, and you don't know it. Um, so 
I, I think that Trump, for me, has been huge as far as a, as a psychological thing, uh, because I've given up on voting and have for years because I realized that um, not just my profession, but any profession that paid an honorable wage um, from, you know, automaker to, um, you know, any work is honorable. But I just realized that a long time ago that, that the United States was never going to defend its own people and, and give them um, the opportunities to excel at the things that we've traditionally been good at, tool making, manufacturing, um, technology innovation, all the things that Americans have just been so, so on top of. Um, the United States was never going to defend its own until Trump. Um, I think that this is one of the reasons why, as a software developer, that I'm I'm just ecstatic about Trump, is that I believe he's the first candidate in my lifetime who's been pro-labor. And it's not inconsistent for a multi-billionaire like him to be pro-labor. It's hard, it's rare, but it's not unusual for someone like Donald Trump to look at the value of labor and to identify and understand the value of labor. Because the value of labor in the Western tradition means something very specific. It means that anything that you buy, whether it's a laptop, a TV set, a car, a piece of furniture, the only reason why that thing has value is because human beings put their effort into making it. That is the most important thing you can understand about any, any uh, discussion about free trade and all the other stuff is that things have value because of labor value. It is the worker who matters the most. And software developers don't realize it in a lot of cases, but we are the last manufacturing industry in the West. If you are a software mm -hmm. developer in the United States or Canada, you are a manufacturer. Okay, you may not think of it that way, but at the end of the day, what you produce is a physical product. It may just be source code and, and things that it, source code is compiled into bits and, and, and is distributed as packages or DLLs or whatever. You are a manufacturer, and we are the last real manufacturing industry in the West. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just like engines and motors ran the Industrial Revolution, <clears throat> our software is running almost all the finance, government, um, pretty much any record-keeping system runs on software and makes the modern world possible. It's an interesting perspective. Well said. Yeah, it's really well put. So <clears throat> going back to what you're saying about Stack Overflow, I don't know if that's still the case, but I remember even two or three years ago, if you went on Stack Overflow at 1 or 2 in the morning, you would just see a deluge of questions from India. And what really always irked me is how they would – how they would phrase their questions. It would say, you know, please kindly send the answer. It's urgently needed. <laughs> you know, just going out there to strangers and demanding answers right now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That, it shows that, that is actually, it is, and it's consistent with, with the behavior that I had with, with offshore teams was that I, I remember having this particular task where, um, my, I, I, you know, I wrote an email because my boss asked me, well, he was like, well, how, you know, we need to have this new feature and, and, and how would you do it given 
we were using like knockout and, and NBC and some other stuff. And I said, well, well, here, you know, here's how I do it. I wrote like a paragraph. I said, you know, here's like a high level view of how you would do it. And, um, the next day I get an email saying, well, you know, we're sending this to offshore, so we need more detail. And then the, the offshore guys are saying, you know, please kindly, would you please kindly explain how, how to do this? And, um, I'm like, well, you know, here's the thing is like, you know, I can I can give it to you, and I ended up having to write it. I mean, it, this drug on for like two weeks, to the point where I actually had to write the code for it and send it to them to say this is how you would do it. Because <laughs> if I put it back, the client would complain about it. It's like you know you're not being cooperative, or you need to mentor these guys. You really need to step in and help them. And I did. I just ended up writing the code and checking it into a, a, a POC repository and saying here here's how you would do it. Just take a look at this. It's a POC, but it's working code. Pull it down, build it, do it. Um, it, it this is not just my experience either, because I've talked to people who, who work overseas, and they tell me the same thing. It's like, Indians are great as long as you're standing over their shoulder telling them exactly what to do line by line by line. I'm like, well, why, why, why would we do this, right? Because you could give this to a motivated uh, uh software developer who's who's white and european and all the other stuff and they they would work on it and they may screw it up but that's fine because that's why we do code reviews right that's why we look at code is because even as long as i've been in software development i still have people review my code you know i have no problems with with code reviews and i've had people who were had five years of experience i would still submit code reviews to them and say hey look at this code and tell me what if anything you see is wrong with the code or, or ways to improve it because um, software development is very democratic. Like I'm, I'm normally very hierarchical as far as the way I think about software development. But when it comes to code, we all make mistakes or there's things that we could do better. And we look for people to give us input. Indians don't do that. I mean, they, they hide shit and they, they do the most, um, I guess the thing that I've seen particularly with, with Indians is that you get, you hire three Indians at a company. I, I remember years ago, I worked at this insurance company. It was a fortune 50 company and uh, the whole shop was Indian. I walked in there as a contractor and I was like, you know, what the fuck is like everybody in here Indian. And it was, it was just like the whole floor two floors were Indians. And I was like, well, how did this happen? Like, how did we get to this point? And I started, as I worked on that project, I discovered um, by talking to people, they said, well, look, here's what happened. We hired this guy, Sanjay, and uh, we hired him about 10 years ago. And then we had somebody leave. And then so, so Sanjay recommended Pradeep. And Pradeep comes in and Pradeep recommends, you know, Krishna. And then Krishna comes in. So Indians never recommend like white people or black people for jobs. Like if they're at a company, if they're on a gig, if a job opening comes open, they hire for that, that position by referring one of their Indian friends who needs a job. Right. Right. And the most, the most striking example of this was when I was at this, this company was that we had this Indian woman who couldn't do anything. You know, you ever heard of the great Paula Bean? If you go to Daily Worse Than Failure, the great Paula Bean was this woman, except she was Indian. Um, and uh, 
she would spend all day on the phone talking about her kids' diarrhea, their fevers, their hay fevers, whatever. And uh, she didn't produce any code. And it was every day it was like this. It's like, uh, you know, her dev manager would go over and say, well, what have you done today? And she would be like, oh, well, you know, I did this and this and this and that. She wasn't checking in any code, right? She would just tell people what she was working on, but she never committed code, which is like the first sign for a software developer is like, you're not doing, you know, daily commits and stuff like that. There, there's, there's an issue, right? Right. And, uh, so I, I started digging around. I was like, what, what's the background on Paula Bean? Like, why, why is she working here? And I was told this, I was told that, look, the manager was out that day when they brought her in to do an interview. They interviewed her, and, and they brought her in. Well, so when they interviewed her, what they did was they had five Indians in a room interviewing another Indian for the job, mm-hmm. and they hired her. And the dev manager told me, he said, they picked the one day that I was out of office sick, and I took a PTO day, and they, they brought her in, and he said, like, I haven't figured it out. Like, how do they know how to do this? Like, they, they, they just picked the day that I wasn't there to do the technical, and they brought her in and hired her. And she had been there for months, even going on a year. And uh, that's how they operate. That's, just, that's, that's the way they, they, they do stuff is they, they network at a level that whites don't understand and then white people end up working in companies where they they can't they can't make sense of why their whole department has become Indian when it started out ten years ago. It was mostly European, right? They just they just don't know because what I've seen in corporate America and I've talked to people outside of work and you know over beers and stuff. I was like, don't don't you think it's kind of weird that like there's ninety percent of uh, the the department is Indian at, at this site and don't you think there's a problem with that? And they'll be like, well, yeah, it's there's something wrong, but I'm going to vote for Hillary, you know, in 2016 because I'm going to signal and I'm going to signal hard, right? I'm going to be I'm virtuous, and I'm close to retirement, or I have a pension, or I have a 401k, and I'm going to I'm going to signal that I'm on board with this, and. They know that the company is, is just is just treading water. I mean, they're just barely keeping the doors open because the quality of the product is just for shit. But you you can't you can't stop them from doing it. Right. So fuck you that, got mine my, thing, right? Yeah, I got mine, and uh, my family thinks I'm an upright, upstanding, upright citizen because I work with diversity and I smile and I eat the shit and I grin. You know, I right. that's the this is all my personal experience. I've been doing this for a long time in a lot of different environments. I haven't worked W2 in years. I I'm all, you know, my own company doing my own thing, but it's, it's the same thing in every single fucking gig and it, it, it never changes. Yeah. And it goes back to uh, the, the, uh, the social outlook thing, because if we give a recommendation to someone, we actually recommend that person. We're putting our reputation on the line to recommend someone. They don't see it that way. Um, so I'm my workplace is sort of undergoing reverse colonization like you talked about. Not in the software side, but um, in a different sector. And we were hiring for a software position, and one of my coworkers, who was Indian, recommended one of his friends. And... She had a PhD, and I looked at her resume, and I couldn't help but notice that all of her advisors, all of her co-authors on her papers were Indian. 
and yeah. we got to the tech interview, and she absolutely bombed it. Like, I tested her on very, very basic questions that were on her skills list. So she put databases. I said, okay, you know, tell me how you would design a database to do this very simple operation where you'd have to do a join across tables, right? So, you know, you have to have right. a foreign key. And she had no idea. And she said, oh, I haven't used, yep. I haven't used databases in years, um, mm -hmm. even yep. though it was on her PhD project that she built a database. Um, mm -hmm. Just completely bombed it, just hosed it all together. And so um, a couple weeks later, my coworker said, you know, when, when, when does my friend start? And I said, she failed every single aspect of the technical interview. We're not going to hire her. And I, I said that was a, you know, I, I told him straight up that was a really bad recommendation. And he said, okay, didn't care. Like he, he didn't, it wasn't any sort of personal injury to him. Um, and the other thing I saw is, well, we, we get a lot of Indians applying for jobs. One guy applied and he had a master's degree, but his most recent position on his resume said that he was a postdoc. So for those people who might not know what a postdoc is, in the science and tech world, after you get a PhD, the next step is usually to do a postdoc. So you just do... You do sort of a, an apprenticeship with another PhD's lab, right? So a postdoc is for people with PhDs. You do your PhD, you go do some research, and then you go out on your own and do your own research, hopefully, and land in a lab at a university. So this person had a master's degree. He had no PhD, but his position was listed as a postdoc. And, of course, it was with another Indian, was his, was his employer. And so I asked him about it. He said, oh, you know, my employer told me that it's totally fine for me to be in a postdoc position, um, even though I don't have a PhD. It's just like, I mean, that's, that's unheard of. It's, it's unprecedented. And no, in the, the whole, no, and, and, that's, that's exactly correct because the academic standards between, between India, uh, in the United States are, are different. And even in the United States, the Indians are treated differently. I, I can give you an example. Um, I, I worked with this, this, uh, guy and he was the onshore, uh, resource, for his consultancy in India. And uh, he had to go back uh, because of, of visa issues or something. So we went out to lunch one day and I said, you know, it was, it was nice working with you, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he said, you know, the biggest problem with going back to India is he says, I don't have enough money to pay off all the teachers for my kids. I said, well, well what do you mean? He said, well, you know, American schools are, are, are free because, you know, he said, uh, you know, my kids could go here and we could stay if, if my green card was sorted out and, and uh, they could go to school for free. And he said, but in India, I go back and I have to have all this money to, to bribe the teachers. And I was like, well, your kids are like, what, 10 or 12 or something like that? And he's like, yeah, but he said, you got to have a lot of money saved up to do it. And um, it's true because the way the Indian school system works is that even up to the, to the college, the, the post high school level, um, parents have to bribe to get their kids the, good, the grades that they need. And um, this happens all, <coughs> excuse me, this happens all the time over there. It's not a secret. And I've, I've asked at least this particular Indian because he brought it up. He says it's just normal. You know, in India, we, we know we have to have a big bankroll to, to pay off the people that we need to pay off so that our kids can make a middle-class lifestyle and get out of 
India. So their their academic standards, you know, white people can't even under, you know, white white people can't even conceive of, of what what is involved in doing this, right? We just we we have so little curiosity about how they do stuff and, and that sort of thing. I mean, when I when I go to a client site and I start a new gig, I have to take a P test, I have to go through a background check, they call my college, they ask about my degree, they 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 do a criminal background check. They do a credit check. I know I've been through this. I go through it like every year or two. Yep. If I do a gig, I have to do this shit. Do you think for a second that any of these offshore companies, uh, not even H1B, but just the offshore companies, that the people that they're putting on these projects have to go through the processes that we do? No, they don't. Right. I can guarantee, I can guarantee you that they do not go through what we do. And I'm not complaining about the background checks. I'm all for it. Like I'm, I have nothing to hide. I'm all for it. But the thing is, is that the Indians are not held to the same standards that we are, either academically, because you put down Bangalore, you know, Institute of Technology. People over here have no clue what that that university is about, or or, or what the academic standards are. They just don't know. But we're asking Americans, young Americans especially, because I, I'm middle-aged, but I, I feel so bad for, for the people who are in their 20s starting out in the field. They could do so so much good for it, but they're competing against uh, shit that I didn't have to deal with back in 1995, 96. I didn't have to deal with any of the, the, the competition that you know our people do. Right. You know, what do you do? Yeah. You sit unemployed for a long time. That's what you do. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and like I said, it's sad because because we could take Americans, the, you know, the really intelligent ones who graduate from high school. Uh, we can take the, the college freshmen, the sophomores, and we've done it in some cases. And we can give them actual paying jobs so they don't graduate from college with debt. They can work their way through college. And the college kids that I've worked with. Uh, in the past on, on one project, you know, they were taking a long time to finish their degrees, but you know what? They were making like $30, $35 an hour doing part-time labor, and they may take six credits or nine credits at most, but they weren't graduating with debt. Right. And talking to them, for a lot of them, it was really important. They didn't, they didn't want to graduate with debt, and they if, it, if they only took six or nine credit hours a, a semester, but they had work, Good paying work, like at thirty-five bucks an hour, um, they were happy with it because you know they 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 were gainfully employed, they weren't accumulating any debt, and they were learning while they were on the job, and they were better positioned to graduate from college and go straight into the labor force at an even higher salary, right? Right. Um, that was just so rare to find a company that, that was willing to sponsor and work with interns from a, a university co-op uh, because American companies in general, you know, global capitalism, there is no loyalty to the country and there's no loyalty to the nation, even if it benefits them economically to be loyal. And, in, and I think in software development, it would be very, very economical for companies to do this kind of stuff. But they won't do it because I think in, in large part because of the multicultural ideology. Like I've, I've just seen middle managers in particular just mentally shut the fuck down. If you say anything about hey, why, why don't you, you know, 
contact the, this university down the road, the one, you know, the one that's like world famous for research, like, why don't you call them this number uh, for their, their co-op program and have them send people up here who are Americans or at least English speakers to do the job. Oh, no, fuck, we can't do that. We got these Indians. These guys are a group of people. No, they're not. They're horrible. You know? I had a client who buried themselves $50 million in fucking debt, and he could never pay this debt back. Never. Right. Not in, in, in any universe. $50 fucking million dollars for a small software company. Never going to unbury themselves. Never going to unfuck themselves. But they, they towed that line about Indian labor being so much better and so much cheaper and blah, 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 for, for nine, ten years until they got bought. And I, I get frustrated with it because um, we we just don't have any sense of, of patriotism anymore like what we used to. I just it's it's really sad and pathetic. Yeah, that's why I keep telling people who advocate for capitalism. I mean, yes, capitalism is wonderful when it's contained within a national context. Once you get to international oh, yeah. capitalism, the parallels to international socialism become very strong. Um, it takes a while to get people to understand that, and you have to get a bit autistic. But yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. And if you invest in, you know, native labor, if you, if you invest in the in the work, you know, the if you invest in developing people, bringing them up, that's a long-term payoff. And if you're a publicly traded company, the expense you spend up front on that investment, you'll get punished for it ruthlessly if you're an executive. You know, your investors will just absolutely BTFO you um, when the next earnings call comes around. Yeah, I, I think a lot of these decisions take, take place at, at an executive level, and the executives who make these decisions don't really know what they're making decisions on. They don't really understand um, the real cost of labor, the real cost of what it takes to produce software that their, their businesses depend on. They, they just don't know. Right. And um, they're all incentivized, too, because the biggest issue that I've run into over the years in getting equipment or getting you know, buy off on how to save the company money was that um, the company will say it's cheaper for us to hire six Indians to do performance tuning than it is to go out and buy this piece of software that will, you know, give you a snapshot of memory usage, CPU usage, and tell you what, you know, where your your, your software is failing. Mm -hmm. I've seen companies do this time and time again. They, they, will, they will fight tooth and nail against buying a license or profiling tool, but they will look at you and look you in the eye and say, "Yeah, we'll we'll hire these six Indians, and they will they will profile this code by manually going through it and making decisions about where the code is, you know, not working or failing or not performing. They will do this. Oh my gosh! And, no, I'm serious. Like, go, go to any any company, especially a corporation, like in my neck of the woods, like walk in there and say, hey, do you have a license for X, Y, and Z as a profiling tool? They, they won't. They won't do it. They'll, and if you go in and you, you petition them to get the license, they'll say, fuck you, which is one of the reasons why I have my own business. I have my own business because I buy this software and I license it and I write it off every year uh, through my corporation. I mean, I just... I got tired like 10 years ago of, of talking to people saying, why don't you just buy the tool that will let you do the job that you need to do and get it done faster and save money? Well, you know, you know, 
Dak's got this big, uh, you know, bonus coming up this year, and he he saves the department money. Then Jack's going to get, you know, a really nice executive bonus because he'll have saved the company a lot of money. And and uh, you know, it's just cheaper for us to have the development group pay for the labor for doing a manual job that they'll fuck up anyway. And no, it's just it's crazy. Yeah, it's a short-term and, thinking. Like said, yeah, it's why I have my own business. It's like I I just I tell my accountant my accountant got you know my uh spreadsheet for this year and said you know here's about you know four thousand dollars worth of uh, software that i bought that i write off because i have to because the, the clients are never going to pay for it and it, it, it's it's not just small companies it's 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 fortune 100 companies it's fortune 50 it's fortune 500 they they make the stupidest decisions that are short-sighted and they have just the most skewed time preferences because of, of the bonus systems that they have for executives. Um, yep. Horrible. So I, um, have, I have to, uh, uh, I have to imagine there's a lot of, um, uh, both, both internal diversity programs and like government contract diversity mm-hmm. programs going on, uh, as well. Because um, yeah. it seems just so over – it's so overwhelmingly bad economically unless you are just – unless you're just so established that you could run on, I guess, entropy from the last 20 years that you can afford to have um, you know, huge groups of Indians essentially doing worse than nothing. Uh, it, it's just uh, – it, it just boggles the mind economically and speaks to it how does. messed up things are in uh, – the world of big business. I can give you an example. So we, we chatted a little bit on Slack before this. Um, there's more to the story. So the particular company that I recommended or I talked about in there, I actually worked for them years later. And um, one of the things that, that, that in the, you know, about the 2005, 2008 period was big media was huge on promoting diversity. So, I remember walking into um, this major media company one day, going to my to my job, and seeing all these banners about Asian Asian IT developers get together. We're going to talk about what it's like to be Asian and a software developer. And I was sitting there thinking, and I was standing at the elevator. I was like, "What's the difference between an Asian software developer and another developer who works with the Asian? Like, what what is different about being Asian and a software developer, right?" Like what? What is different? We do science. I mean, we're we're part part scientists, part artisans. Like, what? Why would you do this kind of stuff? But what I, what I noticed was, and even talking with colleagues, was that at, at their companies they had these same programs. Those programs got dumped, and the reason why they got dumped over time was that they people figured out that their their do nothing jobs where you pay someone you know a salary. To, to just basically run a diversity program. And the diversity program has no value, right? Not right. even for the Asians who this particular course, they, they just have no value. So I would be surprised, like, if I walked, to this, walked back into this media company tomorrow, I would be very, very surprised if they still had the same programs in place. I don't think that they would because every company in, in my, my uh, urban market, they just died uh, because they were just boat anchors on the budget. Mm-hmm. So, you mentioned in the 
in the chat we had before the call that um, a lot of these people come here sort of knowing that they can play the race card. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I, I think, you know, going back to my example of, of the Indian woman who was hired by her friends, um, uh, I think that there's, like, when I talked to my boss about it, one of the things I said was, like, you know, why, why did you make this decision? And he's like, well, I didn't make the decision. They interviewed her when I was out, and then I came back in, and they said, you know, she got the thumbs up. There, There's a sense among Indians that they know that it's, it's, it's more difficult for us to raise issues uh, if you know, there's any potential for a diversity conflict, but a, a more striking example that I have, and it's not, it's not one that I experienced. It was, a, it was a friend of mine was telling me um, about graduate school. He was getting his degree in comp sci, um, getting his master's. And he told me, he said, you know, Higgins one day we went in to do a proctored test. And he said, the Indians in the room started collaborating on the test. The, like this was not an open book test. This was not a collaborative test. They they just started openly collaborating with one another, speaking Hindi in the classroom. Mm. And um, this guy said he said all of us got pissed off because we were actually not we were actually working on our own test uh, for this this graduate level course. And they went and they complained to the proctor. Well, the proctor was like, you know, a European American or whatever, and you know, she she kind of went over there and put the kibosh on it. She walked in and said, you know, you can't. This is not a collaborative exam. You can't do this, right? Um, they bitched about it. They said that the proctor was showing racism because the proctor was essentially not respecting the fact that Indian culture was cooperative. That was their their phrasing of it. Was that, <laughs> Indians are <laughs> cooperative. Hilarious. No, I'm serious. This this, this happened, and uh, this guy who was telling me, he's like, you know, he was former active, you know, former military, all this other stuff, you know, right? He's he's looking at there telling me this stuff, and I just like, I said, well, what did you guys do? And they said, you, you know, what are you going to do? It's like the proctors in, in, in between a rock and a hard space because you know she has to go and tell you know the the professor of the class that they have all these Indians and they're cheating on the exam. And that if, if you point this out, that you're a racist because you're not respecting the fact that Indians are cooperative and they work together to solve problems. That was their answer. Nothing was done. Nothing was done about that test and all the results were accepted. Mm. Now, that's not my personal experience. It's somebody else's experience, but it, it, it shows up in the corporate environment um, because one of the things that, that, that I've seen Indians do is that they promote each other. Um, and I don't mean like job promotion. I mean, like if you go to a meeting, they will sit there and vociferously say during a sprint review that Sanjay and Gupta and Krishna are geniuses. They're brilliant. They just did an outstanding work this sprint and it's so mind-boggling you can't believe that you get to you i've seen people do this indians go in there and promote the shit out of each other but they would never say this about a software developer who's not indian like they would they would never do it i was at a client where every fucking sprint it was the same thing of talking about how great the offshore team was and how great the indians were in the office and how they were all geniuses and that they should be working at microsoft or his son or oracle because that's how smart they were 
but they, they had shit to say about any of the work that was really being done by, the, you know, the, the Native American-born uh, developers, whether black, white, whatever. Mm. It, it was just continuous. That self, see, that, that's a that's a network of ethnic cohesion that, you know, white people in corporate America, they, they can't deal with it. They just don't know what to do with it. Right. Except ignore it and pretend like it's going to go away. They go back to their cube. They shake their heads. And they're like, you know, what the fuck just happened? But they will never say openly there's something wrong. When I can go into a meeting after that sprint, which was a major fuck up, and have all these Indians that they're talking to each, about each other in front of the, the product owner, like they're geniuses. You know, it's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my career. And it's uh, so like like you have to on one level, you have to envy that amount of ethnic uh, ethnic cohesion. But on the other hand, it's just so blatantly like anti meritocratic and just it nonsensical. You just react to it on a visceral level. I wonder yeah, if I, I had this thought. Good. Go ahead. I'll no, just go say, ahead. I'll say I wonder if it's because it's interesting because in India there's very little cooperation, right? The place is just a complete disaster. And I, I, I guess I thought that was part of their culture, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, they don't cooperate in India, but I, I guess it's sort of a survival tactic. They realize they have to do it, so they all get together. There, there are a lot of social and ethnic divisions in India. And I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail later, but go ahead and finish your thought, Higgins. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, I, w- I was just going to say that that um, I, first of all, let me, let me say what you just said is absolutely correct. You know, I've never been to India. I've had bosses go over there, and I, I remember having a boss that came back from a, a long trip over there. I said, "So, so what did you think about India?" And he said, "I'm really thankful that I'm an American and that I was born here." <laughs> That's what he said. Because the, the differences over there are so so striking between what we have here. What one of the, one of the things about that I, that I I um, encountered with an Australian IT director, I, I had dinner with him one night, um, and uh, he said Higgins, he said, um, you know Indians, he called them wogs. So Australians and, and Kiwis, they call them wogs. He said, you know, wogs are a hive culture. And I was sitting there listening. I was like, oh, this is going to be good, right? I'm sitting there eating a steak at like Outback or something. I'm like, this is back when Outback was actually decent. You know, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. I said, so so, uh, what do you mean? He's like, well, he said um, they they have a hive mind. Like they, they can't do anything uh, individually. They're like ants. Like he said, you, you can't give them an assignment and, and have them work on it and get it done, right? You have to be there over their shoulders telling them exactly what to do because he says – he says, Higgins, if they don't, they'll fuck it up. They will fuck it all to pieces. This is a guy, keep in mind, he, he just got off a plane like 12 hours ago. I'd never met him before in my life. It was an arranged you know, dinner date to talk to him about you know, IT stuff. And uh, he summed it up nicely. But that, 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 that phrase, hive bind, uh, came back years later because – I was talking to this this Indian woman one day, and she said uh, she said, you know, well, all the Indians, we all we all live in the same neighborhood in this this particular suburb, and it, it's a nice suburb, right? I, where I live, it's a nice suburb. It's got one of the best you know public school systems in in, in the, the state. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? And uh, she's like, well, you know, all my all my neighbors are Indians. You know, we we all have you know you know houses in this neighborhood. 
And sure enough, there's like uh, I looked it up on on Google one day, and, and sure enough, her neighborhood is like one of the priciest. You know, it's not not real expensive, but it was pricey. And um, I couldn't figure out, well, well, how are you able to get into these five and six hundred thousand dollar you know McMansions in this neighborhood? And uh, the the thing the Indians do is like if you ever meet like a female Indian, I can guarantee you there's a ninety eight percent chance that her husband is also in IT. So between the two of them, they get a decent salary, right? And they they buy houses next to good school systems. And by the way, this is not all criticism. This is like, I wish white people did this shit. Like, I wish that our people did this stuff, right? They they do. They, they, they create these colonies, not just inside of companies, but even inside of subdivisions. And, and they they have access to the best schools because they network together ferociously. They're they're not as good as Jews at, at networking, but they do it. I mean, like if, if one of their their uh, mutual friends in the neighborhood is out of a job because he gets laid off or whatever, everybody in the neighborhood knows, and they they work on you know pulling their contacts, you know to to find out is, is there a position open for you know Pradeep, you know he needs a job, so they always stay gainfully employed. They have a uh, you know double incomes. Um, good paying jobs, benefits, all the other stuff. They, they know how to work the system in a way that native-born whites can't even figure out, right? Because they, their whole culture, they come here and they, they know they're outsiders. They identify as outsiders. So all the old, uh, old country shit about caste and, you know, all the other stuff, it just kind of disappears. Right. And they, they, they collaborative. You know, they, they work collaboratively to achieve their end goals, which is to make sure that they're they are right perched right next door to the best high schools, the best technical institutes, all that other stuff, and that, you know, they live in a neighborhood that is largely Indian or has a large Indian presence. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's hard to fault them for that. I mean, that's what you have to do. I, I think I think white people are going to start doing that more as we look around us and realize what's happening, it's just none of people know what's happening. You know, me being in my, me being quote unquote red pilled, you know, I'm, I always push for my friends. I always push for my white friends. I, I try to make, like I try to help them get jobs. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't try to do anything underhanded with them. You know, I, I don't compete with my white friends like we were taught to do growing up. Because you know, growing up it was, you know, the, it's one big competition. It's one big meritocracy. You have to, you have to, you know, compete hard, do your best, watch out for yourself. But it's not like that anymore. Um, and I, th I think more and more and more people are going to come around to it. Just like you see in Brazil, South Africa, where whites are minority, they stick together like glue there. Yeah, and and I, I'm hoping that that happens. But on, on another level, I, I don't want us to be become a hive culture because one of the things that makes us so distinct from every race in the world is that we are competitive and we, we do get passionate about stuff, even to the point of, of you know, it becoming competitive. Um, it's just that there's a certain point where competitiveness becomes uh, self-destructive because if you don't identify with the common good of your people, then you don't know when to pull back and say, enough is enough, I'm gonna step in and help out this guy who sucks at whatever and get it, you know, get it done because Indians do that. I mean, if one of their one of their people on a on a job is just you know sucking wind and not able to hold his own, they will not say shit about him 
critically right. or whatever. They yeah. won't say anything about it. And I know because as, as even as a consultant, I still get people fired from time to time. I mean, I've intervened and, and gone to uh, gone into managers' offices and gotten people fired, you know, in, in, including Indians, because they just they couldn't do the job. Um, but Indians will never do that to each other. They will not do that to each other. And, and that's a bad thing because like if you're if you're a white guy working with you know ten other white guys on a project and, and some of the guys are not pulling their weight, you know, there's a point where I'm like I'm not going to cover for that guy, right? Like yep. I'm just not going to do it. Indians won't do that. They'll cover for the guy no matter if he's you know uh, you know he's shitting in his cube every day all day long doing nothing else besides shitting in the cube. They'll they'll cover for him. <laughs> and you know we don't do that. You know it's just not how we roll. Well, the uh, in uh, if you assume the level playing field with uh, in in the sense that everyone was allowed to advocate for their own uh, their own tribe, their own ethnic interests, then uh, white individualism and meritocracy would work to our advantage because you're you're keeping people in line and you're you're cutting out the weak links. But uh, when it's we're uh, when when whites are acting as individuals in reference to everybody else and then everybody else is working as a group uh then then you've got a disadvantage yeah i think we're going to start realizing that soon but yes yeah, like you said if um in these indian groups if they're covering for each other it hurts their reputations they don't realize that like I'll, I'll, there's i think there are a lot of people now who don't trust indians in general because they see these things happening and they say, okay, well, this person well, may I, do good yeah. work, but I can't trust their opinion. You you say that because because you're intelligent, you're a software developer, and you see it from from the ground floor. There there's another side to why the H1B works. Um, and I say work, I don't mean it actually works. I mean there's a reason why H1B has been accepted as gospel, and that is middle management. Middle managers like hearing yes 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 sure 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 right so you talk to any 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 indian and say look i want you to build an unreal tournament engine and, and embed it in a windows application and then sell it to this financial analysis group so they can play uh doom all day on unreal engine 4 they'll say sure 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 right meaning don't no matter how ridiculous the requirement is the indian and the indians in your company are never going to say no 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 Right now, European software developers, myself included, we will tell in a nice way. We will tell the, the, the TPOs, no, you can't do this. It's going to cost too much, or you know, we need this or we need that. And you will try to help them and bring them. You will, you will persuade them, right? So that's the way that, that white people work: is we try to persuade people that, yeah, you can get this done, but it's going to cost you this and this and this. Indians always say the same fucking thing: sure, 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 sure. Yes, 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 yes. And middle management in corporate America loves it. Hmm. They eat that stuff up because they Indians is not a problem because Indians are compliant. Indians will always say, sure, 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 sure. And, you know, because of the time preferences of, of, of uh, modern capitalists, they don't have any time preferences. It's all, you know, get it done whenever. And I don't really care what happens in six months if it blows up because, you know, I don't think that far out. Yep. But I, I've noticed that, that that's one of the reasons why, in my experience, that Indians get embedded into companies and they colonize 
is because the middle managers do not want to deal with another cat. And that's the way all software developers are. If you take all of us and put us in a room, we're cats. And herding cats, all the, all the, um, you know, all the old sayings that have been around for ever since I've been in the industry, we are, we are felines. Uh, and we, we will work together, we will get stuff done, and we will do good jobs. But if we have an issue, we will take it, and we, we will, and I've seen developers do this, they will go toe-to-toe with product owners and say, you can't do this, it's stupid, it's a bad idea, and they'll be nice about it, they'll be, you know, roses and strawberries or whatever. But it doesn't make any difference because middle managers hate that stuff. And that's why they love Indians because Indians will say, yes, 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 yes. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's also the common, the common perception, the stereotype, if you will, of Indians being intelligent. Uh, my niece who's in high school just out of nowhere said, Indians are so smart. And I said, oh, really? I said, do you know anything about India? She said, no. I said, how many people do you think are in India? She said, oh, a few hundred thousand. I said, no. India's got over a billion people. And she, her eyes got big. And I said, I said, what, what you see in America is the top fraction of the top fraction of Indian society. And I said, you know, the average IQ of someone in India, and she, she, was, uh, she was realistic about blacks in America. She went to high school with a lot of blacks. I said, the average IQ of an Indian is about the same as an American black. And you could just see, like, you could see the scales falling from her eyes. Um, and <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Vidar because Vidar actually was, they've been around for a long time. And they, they're not, in my, in my estimation, they've never been really alt-right. They've been really big about immigration. You know, they've been kind of a, a one note. But even, I remember in the early aughts, even back then, they were still covering stuff like the fact that the, the average Indian IQ was the same level as a sub-Saharan African. So you're absolutely correct. I mean, they, they do self-select, and the people that come over here are like, you know, the best of the best as far as Indian society goes. And I, I would say this about Indians. Like, I've worked with them, and on a personal basis, I like them okay, right? Like, I can get along with anybody, and I like Indians, but collectively – I realize that they're destroying a lot of young men in particular, their, their futures, right. because, you know, to, to what, what uncle Bob, you know, if you, if you watch, if you watch any of uncle Bob's videos or if you, you, you read his blog or anything like that, one, one of the things he makes a point about in his videos is that the number of software developers doubles like every five years. That means worldwide, if there's 10 million developers today in five years, there will be 20 million developers. But the problem is we're not making better software in a lot of cases. Um, I don't know about your particular jobs or your professions. We have better tooling than we did 20 years ago when I first started out. The tooling is incredible. The framework is incredible. The open source communities are incredible. But a lot of companies and a lot of the work that I do that I get paid a lot of, of a good money for, I'm not complaining, I, I make a good living, is, is fixing shit that is just so bad, it's so broken, and it's just band-aiding it. That's that's what I do is band-aid stuff. And we can't we can't move software forward until we get to artificial intelligence that writes its own software, which I believe ultimately is what capitalism wants to do. Is they they want to get rid of software developers altogether, and just have machine learning, um, and eventually sentient AIs that can do what we do now by talking to a business analyst, right? 
But until we get to that point, our, our, our industry has been really held back. And all these stories about, you know, the percentage of, of failures that we have as, as software developers, that, that stuff is all true. But for any blog that you go to and you read about these, these horror stories about all these failed projects and, and why this doesn't work and that doesn't work, they will never, ever talk about the diversity factor. They will never, ever talk about the level of uh, integration with Indians that, ha you know, has led to dis just very distorted, skewed results as far as, as, as multi-million dollar projects goes. You just won't hear it because the tech industry as a whole is very, very reluctant to talk about it because um, it's just so it's such a hot potato politically. Yeah. It's the gospel. It's the modern gospel. Yeah. Um, another thing that's kind of strange is, so, you know, again, I work at the interface of science and technology. Um, two of my bosses historically have been Chinese. And I don't know if it was just coincidence or what, but they both claim to have been heart surgeons in China. And they were both hopelessly incompetent. They quickly got a reputation for it as well. And so I'm wondering, okay, so you can't perform a five-step experiment that's written down clearly. You, you, just, you just can't do it after six months. Yet you were doing heart surgery in China. I don't know if they were just lying or what, but... Uh, Killing a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> you, won't yeah. Know, you won't know if they're lying because, because the, 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 the part about these cultures that... that um, a lot of whites don't understand is that we 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 act from to to what like the tr you know the, you know the goy say on on the daily show we have a high trust society and yes. if if someone comes in and tells you that we do x and i have x you believe them right like so you know like saint thomas says that that you know if our 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 bias is towards the truth even mm -hmm. even the worst liar is biased in favor of the truth because that's just the ontology of the way we live. Being is about truth. So we always, if you come in and tell someone, hey, your car's on fire, they're going to say, no, you're lying. They're going to say, they're going to get up and run to their car with their cell phone and call the fire department, right? That's the way they work. We assume that about all cultures and it's not true. Yeah. Like, I, I know because I've traveled abroad, I know how very different cultures are, and lying is just part and parcel of functioning. It, and it's not, it's not even a moral condemnation. And, and, you know, in places like India or China, you have to lie to survive. Yes, absolutely. To the point where you, you do it uh, instinctively is a matter of survival, and you don't, have, you don't have the luxury of worrying about moral systems and ethics and things like that. You just don't do it. We didn't create that kind of. My ancestors are from are from England. I mean, that's that's who we are. I mean, I'm probably one of the only Americans left who's got English both sides out the wazoo. Um, my ancestors were Anglo-Saxon thoroughly, and they they, they always functioned and and uh, with the idea that that truth and honesty are more important than anything else. That's the way I was raised, to the point where it's actually it's actually harmful to me to tell someone that that even desiring their good the good of the company which i do i desire the good of my of, of any, any client that i have i want them to be the you know very good 
telling them the truth can be the worst thing that you can do in certain cases because of the, the social fallout from it. Yep. Hmm. But it gets worse, you know, with, with, as, as we, as we embrace multiculturalism more and more, it just, it gets to the point where I, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to retirement uh, as a software developer. I'd like to, I don't know if I'll make it there um, because I, I love what I do, even though it's hard. I mean, what we do, um, and I'm going to go against people who say that anybody can do software development. It's just not true. You, yeah. you have to have a certain mental mindset to do some of the shit that we do, because even if it's simple, it's still hard because most, most people don't understand about software development is that we do a lot of technical stuff. But a lot of what we have to do is dealing with a business. And businesses can be very, very difficult to decompose into a problem that you can solve. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of businesses that I've worked with that have very, very complex rules about everything from pricing to inventory to logistics to, you know, pay calculations to bonus calculations. That stuff is complex. And, um, the idea of taking an Indian and, and putting them into a Western uh, mindset where, where they have to understand Western accounting and Western business uh, psychology and Western business practices and expect them to flourish is, to me, it's just crazy. It is absolutely crazy because, you know, we have – I have Americans that I work with who are born here, raised here. They're European-Americans, and even they have difficulty with some of the harder uh, business problems. Uh, even expressing them. Um, so there's this whole cultural context that, uh, going back to what I said earlier, was this this idea that that globalists put out, you know, in the early aughts, was that we were all interchangeable and that one software developer was the same as another. It's just not true. Um, it's totally not true. Yeah, and it, I've sort of. It seems like the H, there's it seems like the tide is going out in H1B. Do you think that's true? Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, but going back to what I said earlier, I think what companies are doing, and and one of the reasons why um, I'm doing well, is because um, they're backing off of H1B, but they're they're splitting a the difference. They're saying let's do 50% offshore and 50% onshore. Yeah. And they're thinking that that, that is like a, a way of solving problem is that if you get a bigger mix of onshore people to do the work that the Indians will get will learn from that and they'll get better at their jobs by working closely with Americans. It's still not true. <laughs> it is absolutely not true. Um, but it, it is a it is a sign that American companies are figuring out that the H one B thing doesn't work. And, and there's a lot of companies, if you go like on um, any job site, you'll look and they'll say there's no sponsorship. There's no sponsorship. There's see, no sponsorship. Yeah, I no. see that a lot. Yeah. And it's happening more because of the bad experiences um, that have occurred from it, like starting with the farmer that I know. The farmer I know is, is was a civil engineer. And it's, it's just been decades of, of horror stories about it to the point where – um, the global capitalist is in the same boat um, that um, 
a lot of corporate executives are in the sense that we can't keep doing what we're doing, but we don't want to change um, too radically. Like we, we don't want to give the American worker a, a, a good salary for what he does, and we don't want to create uh, the idea uh, again of American craftsmanship, of American excellence, of uh, all the stuff that we've done. Um, it's really heartbreaking. I mean, you think about um, Americans were the ones who put men into the air. We taught men how to fly. We put them on the moon. We have so many inventions in the early 20th century of just American excellence. But, you know, it's bad from global capitalism's point of view because that means a strong middle class. And it also means a middle class that is not as easy to exploit as far as debt, loan, and interest. I think that most of the issues that we have are caused by um, a love of interest, a love of usury, a love of making money off of money, while forgetting what I said earlier, that, that labor is really the whole value of anything that you buy. Labor is the value of anything. It's, it's just we, we have become so... Um, I want to sound like uh, Adam Smith or something, or or Karl Marx more, uh, but the labor has just become so alienated from its product that um, it's been easy to exploit that. Um, and we, you know, software developers, we, we're one of the last people in the world that actually understands the importance of what we do, and most of us try to do a good job at it. Right. It's the notion of craftsmanship. It, yeah, it really is a kind of craftsmanship that uh... – like you, you don't have to design sort of, uh, you know, obscure for like an obscure swipple type market. It's like craftsmanship that can be applied to large scale industry in the modern world. So, so I have yeah. a question for you guys. Um, y'all are all familiar with the mythical man moth, right? Yeah, Fred Brooks. Against mm -hmm. you too. Yeah. How, how much do you think? Uh, how much do you think that these problems with the uh, H1Bs and just mismanagement of software projects has to do with like that fundamental misunderstanding that you can, the idea that you can just add more programmers to a project and you know get more usable code out of them? Yeah, nine I mean, women can make it that more true than. Right. Right. <laughs> I think. Well, I mean, I was just looking it up. Apparently, it's, this book's been out since 1975. And, how are people not getting this? It's not just diversity. It's like too many, too many people's. I don't know. It, it is. And so like a, a few years ago, there's a, there's a guy named Neil Ford. Um, he works at ThoughtWorks and he's written a lot of good books. And uh, I went to a, a, a talk that he gave at my company, the, the client at the time, and it, and it was a packed auditorium. And, and, uh, he said, and I didn't believe him at the time, but he said, do you know that this university is still teaching that the number of lines of code determines the quality of a developer? And I said, oh, that's cool. Right. So two years later, I'm out on a gig, right? And uh, the client starts looking at the code, and he takes my code, and he, he sends it to somebody else, and this other, this other somebody else was uh, an Indian, right? And the Indian says, well... You know, Higgins doesn't write a lot of code. Like, he does everything with not a lot of code, and he says, I'm really worried about that. So as software developers, oh, we know that brevity is, the, brevity is the soul of wit, right, like what Shakespeare said. Right. So when I write code, it's very terse, and it gets the job done. But Indian said, no, 
The problem is you need to have lines of code. So this guy calls up the computer science department at the university, and they say, yep, we tell all of our students that you got to write a lot of lines of code, and that's a, that's a good metric Jeez. for judging the – What the that's, fuck? That's like the most basic bitch – like every, every everyone every new programmer who wants to sound smart will say like knows that they'll say no it's not lines of code it's quality like, it, it, that no, is I, i've been hours actually so basic the amount of code that i write so so like it, it i only I, I give that as an example of how there are ideas that perdure even to this day no matter when this book was written about the mythical man month 1975 or whatever it doesn't make any difference because you still have computer science departments that are still telling people that lines of code is the metric for determining you the quality of your code base. Mm. Tell you about cyclomatic compatibility. They don't. They don't tell you that the more code the right that you write, the more if-else statements that you use, the more com complex the code is. And the more complex the code is, the more permutations of inputs and outputs are, and the more permutation and so on and so on. Right? They don't yeah. tell you this. But I, I don't understand ideas, how they ever could have landed on that as a quality metric. It's, it's an it's a totally industrial model that that hasn't you know people um, haven't gotten out of the mindset that that what we make is like I said earlier it's a manufacturing process, but it's not traditional manufacturing process in terms of how many how many cars do we make on the assembly line right so it's um. But it's, those, it's those ideas, expensive. yeah, right. Those ideas are dying out, I think. Yeah. That's good. I, I see that, too. Uh, that's been my perception, is that uh, there's a realization now that you, you um, the H-1B system just doesn't work well for companies. You end up making a big mess of things. I think too, too many people are having too many bad experiences with it. Yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, I, I'm hoping that, that, that it leads to um, a nationalist economic policy where we actually invest, like I said earlier, in uh, um, our own people because we can do all of this work and we can do it well, uh, cheaper, faster, and better if we just get um, Americans uh, to reacquaint themselves with their own manufacturing history and tradition. Mm, America first. That sounds sounds like something Hitler would say. Against, oh, it's crazy. Pretty scary. Uh, <laughs> gas camps, you know, gas camps tomorrow, but uh... yep. Part part of that has to be um, like it, it has to be difficult for uh, programmers to even this, especially with. Uh, remote work becoming more and more uh, not even if not necessarily popular uh, more ideal like it's something people think about a lot uh, with with the internet it become it with the internet if someone doesn't really have a sense of uh, nationality or national pride to begin with that just further breaks down um, that you, you can literally talk or work with anyone in the world at any time and uh, it's, yeah, I uh, haven't worked in an office in like three and a half years. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So you you've experienced. Uh, so you're you're not even if you're not not even working with people in the same geographical area, you can see how to a normie programmer, you know, it, it wouldn't even uh, 
this stuff wouldn't even cross their mind because they just work with anyone anywhere. No, and it's a radical concept because, you know, I live in a, a town of about 800 people. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's still, we're, we're still pretty close to a large city, but, um, I made the decision years ago to get out, to get out of the city. And I did so and it took a lot of effort, but I've been very gainfully employed ever since then. And, um, I, I think one of the, the, the freedoms that a real craftsman artisanship type mentality towards software is, and I, I know this because from, from talking to other people in my, in my profession, our profession, they do the same thing. They live in a small town. They're, they're good, very good, solid software developers. And uh, they've been doing it for years as well, too. Um, we, can, we can rebuild the rural areas that have been decimated by NAFTA um, and deindustrialization and globalism. We can rebuild these towns because they're very, very economical to live in. I have a lot of land. I have a new house. Um, I don't have any crime. I have peace and quiet. Um, it's, it's, it's a perfect environment to be, you know, a small family or a software developer or whatever. And, uh, we can, we can save people a lot of money if we get them accustomed to the idea that technology frees us from physical boundaries. Too many companies don't still don't buy that, but it's to what you said earlier, it's catching fire. It really is. Um, my client right now is on the other side of the United States. It's a very large company. It's a publicly traded company. Um, we've had a great working relationship, even though we're separated by multiple time zones. It's been a very, very good uh, process to work with them. Yeah, well, the way I see it, um, a lot of these established companies like Facebook and Intel who are pushing and pushing and pushing for more H-1B, what H-1B gets you, I think, at best, is a team that can maintain a product. Um, so a lot of these, a lot of what I see in, in these tech company life cycles is you'll get a group of really talented young people together, not even young, I mean, just talented people. Um, they'll build a product, make it work well. And then after the company gets, uh, after they sell the company to some large venture, venture capital or they go public, then, you know, eventually financial pressure leads them to bring in lower price labor. That lower price labor doesn't innovate, right? T Twitter doesn't do much at all, right? It, it, it was an amazing product when it first came out. It was innovative. It was remarkable. Oh, yeah, yeah. But now now it's just maintained. Same thing with Yahoo. And and really, I think Google, too. Facebook, they all, they're all in a maintenance mode right now. And when you're in a maintenance mode, having H1B, that, that could probably work in your favor, even in the long run. But if you have a reputation as, as a developer, if you're, if you're listening to this and you hear that, oh, yeah, there's offshoring, there's H1B coming in all the time, and there's ethnic networking trying to push me out of my job, yeah, it, it's distressing, it's despairing. But if you can get a reputation for solving problems well, you'll always have work, always. That's, that's something that companies – Companies recognize it, even if they don't like to prioritize it. They recognize people who can solve problems, and you will always be in demand because that's something you can't buy. You, you can't just buy someone who can solve problems. You can't just pull them from any random third-world shithole. 
So career-wise, your emphasis should be on being able to prove that you can identify problems, that you can solve problems, that you can do it well and efficiently. If you do that, you'll never have a problem. Yeah, just don't don't let yourself get stuck in this sort of uh, corporate box where you're just uh, um, yeah, where where you're not necessarily doing too much heavy lifting or heavy thinking. And uh, yeah, you have to challenge yeah. yourself constantly, and there are many ways to do it. And you see, anybody, I mean. Anybody can access the materials to learn how to program. You don't have to go to college. I've never had any formal training in coding. I, I taught myself entirely from books I bought at the bookstore, and I didn't even have to buy those books. I could have I could have gotten information for free if I was more resourceful and knew where to look for it. All the information is out there. Anybody in the world can access the information they need to become a competent programmer, but almost no one does. It, it's all about self-discipline. If you have the self-discipline, you'll be fine. It's, it's also a very – it's what I was saying earlier. It really takes a certain kind of mindset to do software development. And I, I've met too many comp sci people who went to good schools and came out of the programs, and they, they were so bitter about the fact that they were expected to continue to learn throughout their careers. And they sucked at it because they just um, – they weren't on board with the idea that, that software is a, is a lifelong process of learning. Yeah, exactly, because coding is active knowledge. You can teach someone passive knowledge, but you can't teach them active knowledge. You can't teach people how to solve problems. You can only give them information, like the, 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 the basis. Oh. And most people, most people don't want to solve problems anyway unless they're more relative to their own personal issues, right? And yeah. There's, a, there's nothing wrong with that, right? So uh, it's just I don't think that, that, that a lot of uh, people really understand the, like I said, the, the level of uh, um, discipline that you have to have, but also the psychology that you have to have. So Donald Trump is probably great at solving business problems. That doesn't mean that Donald Trump, if he had started out as a software developer, would have been good at it. He may have hated it because, you know, he's a – He's probably an extroverted personality who just would would not have thrived as a software developer. Yeah, it um, takes a lot of patience. But it does, um, and it's tedious too. A lot of a lot of the software development that I've I've done in recent years has just been tedious because I'm I'm fixing other people's code and having to deal with the fact that I can only make so many changes to a mission critical system that the business will allow me to do. Because if you refactor it too much, they freak out, right? right. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, can, you can sit there and try to talk to them and sweet talk them and all the other stuff, and I've, I've spent a lot of hours doing it. But at the end of the day, the business really only cares, does the software function well enough that you know the users can get their work done, not whether it's the best software or even good software. That's, yeah. that's really hard to deal with. Yeah, and a lot of people's perception of coding is that you type code and you run it and it's fine. Uh, a lot of people don't realize going in that coding, even if you're proficient at it, is going to be half writing code and half debugging it. You spend a lot of time just going through and finding why something doesn't work. And that requires a, <clears throat> a lot of patience that you have to develop over time. I think the metric was like 50% of 
40 to 50 percent of the time, even on a greenfield project for a software developer, is running the debugger, attaching, um, monitoring expressions, watch variables, threads, yep. stuff like that. Even greenfield is, is still mostly debugging. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and and you can develop these skills. You don't you don't have to be born to code. You can teach yourself patience. You can teach yourself how to enjoy problem solving. But it, it does take time. It takes a lot of what I call banging your head against the wall. And and you oh, get yeah. you get more tolerant of it over time. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't have the disposition, but you can develop it. Well, so, I'm gonna. I need to uh, wrap up stuff uh, on this, but I've enjoyed talking with you guys, and hope I didn't give you too much of information. I can be a chatterbox when I start talking about my profession. So, no, this this was a fantastic talk. No, Thank was, you so much for coming on. Yeah, we got we, we got Thank what you. we wanted definitely. <laughs> so yeah, if there was, a, I was gonna say if there's anything else you need me to talk about, I can. But I kind of said my piece because um, I really do believe in the Christian idea that that human labor is the most intrinsic value in the universe. I will say that. So even if you're not a software developer, you have to believe in the value of labor and you have to believe in the value of the labor of your people. So be proud of your people and what they've done and, and desire to make it even better. Well said. Thanks again, Higgins. And <clears throat> please come back on anytime you want. All right. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Yeah. Take care. Thank you.